0: Hey, Josh Felber here from Making Bank. Today's episode gonna blow your mind. If you ever thought about real estate investing, multifamily, whatever that may be, these next guests are gonna really drop some amazing insights, give you some different ways that you can actually start to move into the real estate market, whether that's multifamily, single home, whatever that
1: may be for you. So again, check out today's episode of Making Bank. By show of hands, I wish you got everyone out there saying, who thought the market was at a high back in 2018? Everyone says yes, 2019, everyone says yes. That's what we kept saying for the last four years. And now we're at this point where everyone thinks we're at the height of the market. I think an investor, whether you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in bonds, whether you're investing in crypto, real estate, you make money when it's markets going up and when the market's going down. You
2: don't have to live in the area that you're investing in a short-term rental in order to be able to manage it remotely. A lot of people are like, well, how do I get it clean? Well, what if there's an emergency? It's the same exact thing, like if a toilet breaks in my place in Tennessee, I'm doing the exact same thing as if one breaks behind me in Florida, I'm calling somebody because I don't know how to fix a toilet.
3: And we won't be talking about crypto on this episode of Making bank with Josh Felber.
4: Next up,
1: representing Primal Life Organics. Josh making big falver
0: Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super excited and honored for today's guests. I'm excited to welcome Jake and Gino to Making Bank today.
1: Josh, thanks for
0: having us on. Let's welcome Avery Carl to Making Bank.
2: Thank you so much. I need to update my one sheet. I'm closing on door number 220 tomorrow. Oh,
0: (laughs) I'm excited to welcome Salvatore Bushimi to Making Bank.
3: Josh, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for making time to allow a guy like me on your, on your podcast. This is-
0: if somebody's starting to you know, look or they've been looking, um, obviously they've got to make the decision, cool, I'm ready to, ready to invest and you know, they're ready, ready to make this happen. What are some of the key things they should start to look for or be aware of uh, when, they, when they go to invest?
1: I think, Josh, the first thing you need to think of is what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish with multifamily? Are you trying to do it on the side where you're using it as a retirement vehicle, where you're you you know, are working 30 hours a week and you wanna leave your job and do this full time? I think that's the first thing. What are your goals? Or, or are you a high income earner, like a doctor or a lawyer, and you don't have the time, and the bandwidth to dedicate it? Well, go out there and maybe you can become a general partner on deals. So first thing I think mm. is you need to set your goals and what you're looking to do. We overestimate what we can get done in a year, but we vastly underestimate what can get done in five years you know, our first 18 months goose egg, but within five years, we had 1500 units because we had the clarity of what we wanted to do. So first Mm -hmm. thing, set upon what goals and what you're trying to accomplish. I think the next thing is select that market, focusing on one market, especially if you're new, because you're going to really need to create those relationships in business and in real estate. Relationships are so key. Getting with in front of the brokers is really important. Doing property tours is really important. That's why if you decide today to start multifamily, you're gonna need a good 60, 90 days, maybe even 180 days, let's say, to get all of this stuff going. And by that time, the market cycle then has changed. That's yeah. why it's never a long time to get into it. So you've got your goals then you've got your market. Then you start networking with those brokers and getting on those property tours. And then obviously the education aspect underwriting looking at deals taking taking a look at all that stuff but it has to start with you you're the first one like i said for myself i knew multifamily was the right thing for me because I had the full time job. I wanted to do something part time with the intention of within two to three years to leave the restaurant and to scale into multifamily. So that's why I selected multifamily. I selected Knoxville. I selected the submarkets in Knoxville. And then I guess Jake is probably going to talk about the buy right criteria. But we had a criteria of what kind of assets really worked for us. A deal for Jake and Gino is not a deal for Josh. It, you know, it can and can't be. Josh may have different goals, may have different time frames, may have different, you know. Balance sheets, Josh may have a ton of money. Jake and Gino didn't have a ton of money starting. So those deals look a lot different starting than they do now. Yeah, no, Gino, 100%. Okay.
4: That's, that's, where, that's where I wanted to go with that. Because I think ultimately, clarity as an entrepreneur will set you free. And what Gino was referring to in our first book, uh, we wrote about buy right, manage right, and finance right. And we really think that is the three pillars to sound multifamily investing. It's a, it's a framework. Once you buy it, that's done You know, once you finance it, we're probably fixing for a minimum of 10 years and then it all hones around that management, but you need to have proper buy right criteria. What do I mean by that? How big of a market are you looking at, population wise? What do you need? What is the median income of that sub market or track that you're purchasing? Okay, what is the vintage of the asset that you're comfortable with taking down? The list goes on and on, but if you get clarity there, you can quickly remove deals off your desk when they don't make sense, so you're not wasting time with them. And then the ones that fit those, you know, criteria that you're you're underwriting for, and then they they meet the the uh, the metrics for your returns that's what makes it easy and then the brokers are not wasting your time if they're giving you you know units that have uh, window units and they they you know they have older electrical okay maybe that's not on your list you want we only do central heat and air we want washer jar hookups in the units whatever you set that criteria that works for you, then you're going to have a better broker relation. Uh, so when the deals come through, you're going to close quickly because that's what they want. They want to be able to give you a deal that they think, think, think fits. You don't give them a fucking hard time and you close the deal. That's how this relationship will work and you'll get more deals fed to you. So it's very important.
0: Yeah, no, that, that was actually kind of my next question is like, you know, how do you kind of get that deal flow? You know, what you just kind of mentioned, you know, we're working with the brokers and getting it closed quickly and, uh, you know, and having that, uh, framework of what you want, um, in a deal.
4: Yeah. We, we also have these, uh, these mercenaries out there, right. They're, uh, that was going to say that, uh, basically call direct to owners for us. And so they bring us deals as well. Where like, that's what these guys do. And we'll pay them. They bring us a deal and uh, we'll pay them to do it and kind of do like an off market scenario. So we, we do that as well. Yeah.
0: As an entrepreneur, I mean, how should we be looking at different ways to place our money, so I mean, obviously, there's real estate, there's residential, well, there's, there's,
3: there's real estate multifamily. There's, multifamily. Estate. there's I'll tell you what all the different York, kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what the New York City guys like, and I, and this is this is something where um, a lot of people don't talk about it, but this is sort of like the lifestyle of a real estate life cycle of real estate. If you have significant wealth and you're sitting on like Josh Felber money, like tens of millions of dollars, you don't want to have two thousand single family homes because it just doesn't make sense economy of scale. But if you're at that point in your life, you're looking for more prominence, aren't you? You're looking for more stature because there's only so many Rolls-Royces that's so shallow. Today, people like to show off on Instagram their networks. They like to show off the assets that they own. Uh, for example, Class A, what we call statement assets. Maybe Josh finally wants to be part owner of the Cleveland Browns, right? So that's, you know, as much as they don't perform, that's a different thing that these guys, you know, but they do make money. Definitely not. No, of course not. But I mean, (laughs) but that is like, that's a status symbol, right? That's a statement asset. You going after that because you know, you're getting into it for two reasons. Number one, you can brag to your friends about it. And number two, you're going to be in a mix with more sophisticated investors that are going to help elevate your current business, right? Let's face it. You're not investing in these things because you want to make money. You do, of course. You want the bragging rights, but really, like especially in like sports ownership and Class A real estate, you want to find out who the other people are because all common denominators at some point with wealth creators comes down to one thing, and that's commercial real estate. Now, the type yeah. of commercial real estate comes in is the speculative, so that's single-family homes and that's uh, multi-family. That's a wealth creator. That's where you buy it, fix it, flip it. That's construction. You buy it, you flip it, you change from a Class B, you know, Class C to Class B apartment families. Anything with residential it's a wealth creation mechanism because you're being paid to take the risk with crappy tenants who are poorer than you, right? The wealthy don't like that. People like you want tenants who are richer and more credit than you are because when you wake up in the morning, you're providing for your foundations and special endowments, the certainty of cash flow that's coming in. So it's a whole different thing right now. The last thing you want to see is the Felber Foundation and red copper letters be smeared because it can't make a contribution or something for something that was promised because it was in a bad real estate deal. You can't have Mm. 40 single-family homes in an impoverished area in America fund your foundation. It doesn't make sense. People try to do it. And the reason why they fail is because they don't have the networks to get to the higher level into the more sophisticated opportunities, which is where we like to play, which is where you're dealing with commercial real estate non-residential. A lot of people are scared of residential, the investors I have, because they feel as though the residential uh, tenants have a lot more rights than they do. So that's why they gravitate towards bigger centers like Class A industrial office, um, statement you know assets, but also investments that not only have a high perceived value status, but also has other smart shoes in there as well that you can network with.
0: And that's more like commercial office buildings is, is what you're referencing, yeah, yeah,
3: You know, th- things that what, what, we would, what they used to call the trophy assets, that's what we we're talking about. So it could be like a skyscraper in, in, in Dallas. Uh, we had a bid right before the pandemic, we pulled it for... Uh, hundred, uh, hundred and thirty million dollars of a Class B to Class A office in Orange County, which would have been great. We had great, sexy <laughs> drone shots of it. The pandemic came. We're like, nope. We don't, you know, I said we're removing the term sheet. We're out. Um, there are other types of th- think about aspirational real estate, like owning, you know, part of a casino or a hotel, like a really nice hotel. Think about it. A lot of partners in sure. New York own a lot of beautiful hotels. They trade hands. Some of them make money. Some of them don't because it's a status symbol to say that they own this hotel on Central Park West. Does that make sense?
0: So how did you guys go from like five to, would you say 220 or 225 um, you know, uh, units in what, five, seven years? Um, so like, how did you guys scale that effectively? And then also, so it's not just like everything's happening out there and it's not working out and all that, obviously successfully.
2: So the main piece of advice I have on that is to not, live off of your rental income. Only just put that back into more properties. And I think where people get in trouble is living off their rental income. So they can never actually, you're living off of it. So you can never use it to go buy another property. Um, for us, the way we did it was we went as far as our debt to income would let us on conventional loans to start out. And that got us to about four. And then we started doing, um, we started throwing in single family and duplexes in Chattanooga, which at the time, and those were, these are for long-term now. The Chattanooga stuff is for long-term. At the time, you know, you could get those for between 80 and a hundred thousand. So you don't really see, you don't feel that 20% on an 80 to a hundred thousand dollar house going out the door as much as you do like a hundred thousand on a (laughs) a nice big short-term rental. So we started just kind of sprinkling those in. And then we got up to like 20 of those. And then we said, well, Maybe, you know, we're doing all these little single family deals, why don't we just do like a 12 unit or 10 unit and cl- find, you know, some multis and start actually making this go a little bit faster. So then we started buying some multis in the Midwest and then, you know, it just accelerated much more quickly cuz now you're buying between 10 and 50 units in one transaction sure. instead of one after the other.
0: And and then with kind of like your multifamily type units, what do you guys, you know, are you guys looking for a certain type? Are you guys looking to be able to then fix those up and increase rent? Kind of what's your whole focus and goal with those?
2: We typically fix them up and increase rent just because the it the way the market's been for the last year and a half, it, it's been so hard to find anything mm. that, you know, you're not finding anything turnkey, multifamily, like not very easily anyway. So the deal's got pretty slim. So we're we're down with, as long as it's in a good enough area, we'll do like a full rehab on stuff just to get, you know, get that rent up and where it needs to be.
0: Right. Okay. So what are some of the different kind of like pitfalls or challenges that people run into, whether they're whether it's closing a multifamily deal or, or I guess some of the biggest things that could hold them back or those hurdles that they might run into?
4: A lot of time it comes it comes down to property management. Um, you know you you buy a deal like we've talked about, that's sort of done. Hopefully you you had you know your numbers right and you you acquired it in a, in a good manner there. Financing's typically locked in longer term. It really comes down to management. and if you're doing third party management, you really have to manage that relationship tightly uh, as an asset manager. And so we recommend everyone getting on with their property managers at least once a week. You're the leader of that, okay? You're dictating the cadence of accountability, what things are supposed to look like, and not just saying, "Oh, this is just an investment," and pushing it off and hoping that they take care of it. You really need to have extreme ownership and make sure that you're leading and really making sure that you're outlining the way things are supposed to go for that property manager. Otherwise, they're going to just assume and do what they, you know, think is right. And and typically, we see that's where there's a lot of failure. So it's it's really you know understanding this is a business. You need to treat
1: it like one. You need to have leadership and hold your property manager accountable. And Josh, just to piggyback back off of that real quick, it's buy right, manage right, and finance right. Mm, and a lot of right. the educators out there, it's sexy to buy a deal and to finance a deal, but they just forget about managing it because they don't manage it. And what Jake had said previously, we're vertically integrated. And, and to add to those three pillars right there, we have the three pillars of real estate and it's market cycle, debt, and exit strategy. And the reason why I'm mentioning this as well on those three pillars that exit strategy is so crucial. You need to understand what you're going to do with this deal. Like, think about it, a plane is getting off. You're flying a plane, you're taking off. Taking off is mandatory. Landing, you gotta land the plane. It's just like a deal. You gotta think about it. You don't have to buy that deal, but once you buy that deal, you better understand what you're going to do with your exit strategy. Whether you're going to sell the deal, whether you're gonna hold it for the long term, whether you're gonna refinance it. So people, I don't think, they understand really clearly what a deal looks like and what they want this deal to achieve for them. So, getting clarity on that aspect as well, understanding to buy it right and finance it right, those two legs are done. The wheel of the wheelbarrow is to manage right. That's in constant motion. You're constantly managing that asset. And if it's not you, it's third party property management. But then, understanding those three pillars of real estate that market cycle, where you are in the market cycle, the type of debt you're getting on the deal, and that exit strategy is so crucial because we made the mistake, Jake and myself, early on. We're buying deals. What's our exit strategy? We really didn't think clearly. We thought we were going to buy and hold forever. And fortunately for us, that's what we've turned into. But a lot of students joining, thinking that, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy this and hold it forever where, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe this asset you can sell in three years, repurpose that equity into another deal.
0: Now, as you guys are, ha- have been growing this, do you guys kind of manage it all from where you are in Florida? Do you guys have a property management company or did you create your own? Kind of like what's that look like?
2: So it looks different for each asset class. So for all of our long terms, whether it's multi or single, property management all the way for our short terms part of the reason that we were able to scale so much more quickly and this is what we teach all of our clients at the short term shop who buy with us too is how to manage their property remotely so that they don't have to use a property manager because in short term the average property management split is 20% of mm. your gross so you know that's a lot of money if i'd paid some, a property manager that last year i would have paid somebody $250,000 which for a a thirty thousand dollar gig. So, right. as a real estate investor, you know we can all find better things to do with two hundred fifty thousand dollars than to pay a property manager, uh, at least on you know eight yeah. nine units. It's ridiculous. So, we still quote self manage all of those. We have uh, since we have so much stuff going on now. We've got a VA who helps us with that, but it's still definitely not like a, a true property manager. So, we still are running everything, but we have a, a virtual assistant who helps us do that on the short okay. terms.
0: And then you said you had um, like 15 offices, is that what you were saying, real estate offices?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, so I, I did not start this whole journey as a real estate agent, I started <laughs> as a marketing manager. And uh, so probably on our second or third short-term rental purchase, we realized there weren't really any agents in the space who not only specialized in it, but who could really even answer our basic questions about like, how do I find a cleaner? And so mm. I got my license, bridged that gap, and became that agent. We started our first office in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, and now we have 15 offices in 15 of the top short-term vacation rental markets in the country. And so any of our clients who buy with us in any of those markets, we have a whole like backend training program where we teach them how to manage their property remotely so that they don't have to pay that property manager 20% of their gross. So they can actually keep that money and go build their portfolio and scale and actually build some wealth with it instead of paying somebody to run everything
0: what are kind of maybe like three top things that we should think about that make sure we have the either the right management company that we're partnering with or
1: in our own if we have our own management company what are those top three things i'll hit first one you have to have that cadence of accountability you need to you need to really be on a weekly or at least a biweekly call you want to be proactive you want to understand what your key performance indicators are your kpis if you can't measure it then you can't manage it what are your delinquencies? What are your vacancies? What are your collections? You know, you're looking at you know, economic occupancy. Are they, are they actually paying rent or are they just physically occupying the thing? You need to know what those KPIs are to become proactive. That's really, really important with management. And I think the second part of management, they're a vendor like anyone else. Do they fit your core values? Do they fit your culture? Are they going to be a good team member? Because this is such a vital and crucial role. And I think I'll do three, 3.0, and I'll let you Jake, do 3.1. Don't be cheap. Pay your property management companies. It's a tough business to manage people and put people into their homes. So pay your property management companies.
4: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think two key reports that you, you got to keep in mind. One is a weekly pulse report that shows all your KPIs. It's something that our company sends out. So it'll show your occupancy. It'll show your, your cash on hand. Literally, it'll go through and show you know delinquency. Uh, vacant unrented is an important one for us uh, because we collect move-in fees and we don't do security deposits. So it shows how many units are available to actually rent. It's a very key one for us. Uh, and then there's a, a cash management report we call our draw report every month, which basically shows here's the baseline of cash that we keep in there. Everything above it is profitability. And then we actually list out profit per unit. So if there's 150 uh, units in a complex, we actually show how much profit each one of those units made and then we can benchmark it across our other units to see which properties and what unit types are doing the best in our market and then if we you know maybe it gives us some insight maybe we want to get more of these townhomes because they're doing really well or, or maybe these uh you know one bedrooms with washer jar hookups are exceeding you know from the rest of the portfolio so it gives us really good insight to our own data and our own metrics uh so it's it's something we really like to look at
0: Awesome. Yeah. And, and definitely having your metrics, I mean, with any kind of businesses is, <laughs> is key. If you're not knowing your numbers and you don't know what's yeah. going on, uh, it's definitely not going to be a long-term uh, workable thing for you, for sure. Any last thing, something you're like, oh man, I hope Josh was going to ask me this question, but I never asked that question or just something you want to last share with everyone as we wrap up.
3: Yeah. So here's something I said on stage not too long ago. Ask me what the second rule of real estate is.
0: Tell us what the second rule of real estate
3: is. Never stop raising capital.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right? There's a few of
3: those out there. Yeah, there are are a few of those out there. But the other thing I would would tell people too is that I just spoke in front of my private high school back out east and people were saying, what's entrepreneurship if you could like really put it down? And I think even everyone, you know, I've seen everybody I know as an entrepreneur involved, even myself, is that entrepreneurship is self improvement in disguise. And if you can really understand that, then you're gonna have a lot more fun. If you're trying to stay yeah. static and pigeonholed and like you're an institution that just came out of HP, you're not gonna really, you know, go too far. You have to be able to do things that you're uncomfortable with that growth will help you uh, later on down the line, especially when you start working on bigger things like like I am right now, which is really cool.
2: The main thing is so you can't always live in the best market. To invest in for short-term rental or long-term or whatever. So what I really want people to understand is you don't have to live in the area that you're investing in a short-term rental in order to be able to manage it remotely. A lot of people are like, well, how do I get it clean? Well, what if there's an emergency? It's the same exact thing. Like if a toilet breaks in my place in Tennessee, I'm doing the exact same thing as if one breaks behind me in Florida, I'm calling somebody because I don't know how to fix a toilet. I'm just calling somebody. The act, the actual task is the same. I'm picking up the phone and making a call. Sure. So it's really just a mindset shift. And um, all you really need is a cleaner, handy person, and then you have your automation tools, and then you are off to the races and you can kind of settle in as you go. But I think the biggest limiting belief is thinking that you have to live like next door to it and be able to drive by it.
1: We had the pleasure of interviewing somebody who was discussing culture, and it just came to my mind. I've got the book in front of me. You promote what you permit as a business owner, as a parent. If you allow it to happen, that means you're promoting it. And it's the same thing with a property management company. If you're not up to date, you're not talking to them weekly or biweekly, you're promoting poor performance. So take it upon yourself. Jake has always talked about being a responsibility junkie. Be responsible. Victimhood is great for a few days, few weeks, but you're not going to accomplish. You're not going to live a fulfilling life. So you promote what you permit. Write that down. And if you live by that core value, you're going to live an amazing life. Go to jakeandgina.com. I'm Gino, he's Jake, and we're Jake and Gino.
4: Hey, I got one more for you, Josh. Uh, we do we do one event we do one event per year. It's November 5th and 6th in Orlando at the Gaylord Palms, Multifamily Mastery 5 this year. It's the only event that we open up to the general public throughout the year. So if you want to find out more about multifamily, you want to learn more about buy right, manage right and finance right, uh, you can check us out jakeandgina.com again it's the only event that we do throughout the year because we do a ton of events, but this is open to the general public and you get to, you know, network with our community, tons of great speakers. Uh, we'd like to, you know, call it the financial vacation for smart people. So, appreciate your time today.
0: Awesome. Thanks guys. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank, Get Out and Be Extraordinary.